and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers Australia. Listeners, I'm super excited to be welcoming my next guest to the podcast today. Megan Rogers is a debut novelist with impeccable credentials. Starting her work life as an editorial assistant at Allen and Unwin before taking up a position in marketing at the State Library of Victoria, Megan has a PhD in creative writing as well as a Bachelor of Arts majoring in science. Uh, a Diploma of Professional Writing and Editing, a Graduate Diploma in Professional Communication, and a Master's of Marketing. Incredible. <laughs> Megan penned a non-fiction book called Finding the Plot, A Maternal Approach to Madness in Literature, published by Demeter Press in 2017. And this year, her debut novel, The Heart is a Star, is set to be released by HarperCollins Publishers. Having had the pleasure of devouring this book recently, I can tell you listeners, this is a beautifully written, highly evocative and enthralling read to add to your piles. About a woman at the crossroads of her life and her quest to uncover the truth behind her father's death, The Heart is a Star is a book I won't forget in a hurry. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with Megan about it today. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. What a lovely intro. I feel <laughs> great honoured. <laughs> oh, well, it's all true. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm still getting used to, I guess, people just being so lovely and generous. So thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. Now, Megan, the book isn't officially out just yet, but I feel like I've been seeing it everywhere for months and it's getting a lot of attention. So I wondered, does this make you more or less nervous about its impending release? That's a great question. Uh, I think it makes me both as this kind of process seems to always do equal amounts of um, the spectrum. I think it makes me grateful more than excited. I, I, I genuinely feel, feel very grateful that people are giving it some airspace and that people are taking time out of their busy lives as well to read it because everyone's busy. And I also feel really blessed that I have a publisher who believes in it as well and who are willing to kind of share it with people and put their heart behind it as well um but of course I think especially as a debut novelist it does make me nervous you know because you start to realize that people are actually going to read it (laughs) because when you're writing it you write in a bubble and it's often quite uh, isolated and you don't think well I didn't think very much uh, about a reader uh, and about it being out in the world because you don't kind of want to make assumptions I think when you're writing so now that I know that you know, people are seeing it out and about and are going to read it. I do get very goose bumpy and lots of butterflies in the stomach in the lead up. Oh, well, I'm I'm fairly certain that that's all very normal. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Now, talking about your writing, I wondered if you could talk me through your journey to publication. Had you been working on this novel for a while and how in the end did you get your book deal? Yeah, great question. So, and it's also, you know, a story that I have loved devouring when other authors have been published. You know, I've loved listening to you and and other interviews with authors. So um, to finally share my story is is really surreal and lovely, actually. So 
Uh, this is something <clears throat> that I've wanted since I was about four years old. <laughs> so I used to uh, write in my mum's 1970s herb books and pretend that they were books that I'd published. I think I may have tried to sell a couple, but nobody seemed to want to buy them. And it was something that I never really um, stopped wanting throughout my life. I was the little girl who entered short story competitions in primary school and in high school. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a poem published at the Melbourne Writers' Festival when I was 16. And I think when I went to that Writers' Festival, it was the first time, you know, I, I was always one of those kids at school that felt a bit different and I was quite introverted. And when I went to the Writers' Festival and I was surrounded by readers and writers, it was the first time that I kind of felt like I could breathe and I felt at home and I felt... I felt like I'd found my tribe, I guess. It's such a cliche that saying these days, isn't it? But I think as a 16-year-old girl, it was one of the greatest moments of my life feeling like I could be myself around people and, and what a gift that was and is. So I guess that propelled me into going into doing a Bachelor of Arts Science. So I majored in English literature and doing all of the usual subjects in, in arts and then I did science as well which I loved and then yeah I went on and I did the professional writing and editing diploma at RMIT that so many writers come through especially in Victoria uh, which is such a beautiful program so nurturing and and really does set you up with so many of the craft skills and you know I think that for many many years I didn't trust myself to write a book I didn't trust my own voice I didn't have the confidence to start writing a full-length book I, I dabbled in all of the exercises that you do at university and in the assessments that you hand in and so forth and you know I didn't have very much growing up so I was working and you know supporting my family and wanting to earn an income as well and so I was really focused in my especially my 20s on you know building a career that could um, I guess you know, set me up uh, a little bit more than, um, you know, I had experienced in the past. And, and that that kind of took me away, I guess, a bit from my dream as, as happens to so many of us, doesn't it? But I never gave up on it. And a couple of things happened when I was in my early 30s. I'm 43 now. I had my first baby, um, Ava, who is now 11. And, and then my second uh, child, Maya, who is now eight. And you know, I started to give them advice about chasing their dream and they can do anything they want to as long as they work hard. And I started to realise very, very quickly that I didn't follow any of that advice that I was giving. Every single piece of advice that I gave them, I was incredibly fearful of doing myself. And you're, I think, you know, everyone starts to realise that, you know, children, they notice what you do. You know, they're little mirrors and actions, again, another cliche, but it's so true, actions speak so much louder than words. And so I thought, you know, Megan, you've got two daughters and if you're ever going to, to do this, using them as motivation is a really good idea. And so at the same time, my father, you know, he was becoming quite unwell. <laughs> it still actually gets me a bit emotional, but I think you realise you know, that life is really short and he was, he had Alzheimer's and um, we were trying to get him into a nursing home and all of those things aligned to propel me with the, the catalyst for me to, to start seriously thinking about it. And so one night my youngest stopped breathing and I rushed her to the Royal Children's Hospital and they saved her life and they were, goodness, they were incredible. 
And I was sitting in the cafeteria afterwards. My husband was in Sydney for work at the time, so I was kind of sitting there with my two kids, really unprepared and unready to go home, probably looking a complete mess. And a woman approached me wearing a lanyard and all the official attire, and she said, would you like me to sit with you and your baby and child for a moment? You know, you can go into the bathroom, get something to eat. And I think I was, you know, I was too exhausted to say no. I'm usually terrible at accepting help, but I just... I just did. I, I was so grateful. I came back and, you know, strangers often do. We shared our stories and she said that she was an anaesthetist at the hospital and that she had growing children of her own and an ageing mother she was looking after and that she often felt as though she wasn't doing anything particularly well. And she said that one of the greatest gifts that her job had taught her is to not look away, that when she sees people in pain or experiencing kind of a, a real deep emotional experience that she doesn't look away. And so I went home that night and I wrote the opening line to the book, which never changed really, which is like a splinter in my finger. I always thought that if I left my mother alone, she would work herself out. And the book got put on the back burner a little bit for a few years because I had a baby and a child and it's, it was all a little bit too hard for me to think of writing a full-length novel, to, to be completely honest. And then a second event happened which I guess propelled me into actually writing the book. And that was I was teaching creative writing at the time at RMIT and I was sitting in a shared space overlooking Swanson Street in Melbourne and uh, I had my then uh, young, she was kind of a young toddler strapped to my chest. I looked out the window and I saw a woman standing in a suit holding a child looking across the road and I looked at her and I, I watched her and she didn't move for what seemed like about five to ten minutes. And so in that moment I wanted to honour you know, those anaesthetists' words and I didn't want to look away. So I went down and I gently approached her and I said, I'm sorry, I hope you don't mind me asking, but are you okay? And she turned to me kind of surprised and she looked at me probably probably exhausted like I was feeling in that cafeteria and too exhausted not to be honest. And she said, no, I, I don't think I am okay. And so I said, why don't, why don't you come and have a coffee? And um, we'll have something to eat. And so we sat down and she had a grilled sandwich. And she said that she was due to go back to work as a lawyer that morning and to put her child into care for the first time. And she couldn't imagine being apart from her baby for the day, but she also couldn't imagine not going back to work. And that those decisions were paralyzing her. She couldn't move. And we spoke and I held her baby for a little while with mine. And Eventually we parted ways and I gave her my details and about 12 months down the track she sent me an email saying that she'd quit her job and that she'd started up a HR company that specialises in women who are going back to work after having kids. And I wanted to write a book which honoured both of those women and so many of the women in my life at the time that were having breakdowns in their identity uh, and the uncertain development of new ones. It's not the anaesthetist story and it's not the woman in the suit story. It's not my story by any stretch of the imagination. But I really do hope that somewhere under the main plot, readers will find a sense of, I guess, company in the story and some of the themes that are dealt with. I love those pieces of inspiration for this beautiful story. And I think I told you before we started recording that one of the things that I loved most amongst an array of things that I loved about this book was the single point of view. This is Layla's story and we are in her head 
uh, for the entire time. She's such an incredible character. She's so flawed. She's so conflicted. She's so smart and so tortured. I wondered if you consciously chose to write Layla's story this way. Mm, that's a really, really, and I love these types of questions because they're kind of just craft and I, you know, I could talk, I, talk, I can talk about these things for hours. So thank you for asking because that's such a beautiful question. And yeah, that the the answer is a, a resounding capital letters yes to that. I think when authors sit down, they they often decide and play with sometimes. You know, how am I going to tell this story? Is it going to be in third person, first person? Is it going to have a single point of view, multiple point of views? Is it going to be in current tense or past tense, and so forth? So there's all these little buttons and levies, you know, that we're pushing and pulling. So I think for me personally. Uh, I, at the moment, really love reading books which are probably a little bit more closed in their focus just so that you can gain a more intimate insight into what's going on. And because I I wanted to give voice to a lot of the thoughts and feelings which sometimes I think we silence as women, I think sometimes we're ashamed and we are shamed to feel them and think them. And so by using first-person closed narration in current time where she's uncovering and discovering things at the same time as the reader. I wanted that journey as well so that there's a kind of companionship between the reader and her because they're both, I guess, coming to a new sense of truth at the same time. I think there's a lot of books out there at the moment which which are wonderful, which are amazing and, you know, multi-generational, multi-viewpoint, and they serve a wonderful purpose and, you know, readers love them. I guess I wanted to, you know, offer something a little bit different which delved quite deeply into, you know, tortured is, is probably a pretty good word. And I think that many of us feel tortured and ashamed for our decisions and thoughts, even if they're very different to Layla's. You know, we're still up at 3am thinking about all those thoughts or ashamed for, you know, desiring and wanting things, whether it's a balanced, more balanced lifestyle or more time that we can dedicate to things we really love rather than, you know, looking after everyone around us. So, you know, those decisions in craft, I guess, allowed me to reinforce the thematic points throughout the novel in a more considered way. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so I think we've kind of like, you know, spoken around the story a little bit. So I wondered for the benefit of those readers who obviously haven't read the book at this point, could you tell us more about the story? Sure. So I guess, you know, we call it the elevator pitch, don't we? <clears throat> but I'll start with that so that, uh, you know, because we always do, don't we? The Heart is a Star is essentially about a woman who races to the west coast of Tasmania to try to stop her mother from killing herself, but in doing so saves her own life. It's it's really about a woman who has, by all intensive purposes, reached the pinnacle of her career, even though she's had something quite terrible happen in the workplace. On the outside, she has a nice house and she has a good career and she has children and a, a marriage and she has all these boxes that we tick in that first part of our lives. You know, we accumulate and we accumulate and she has all those things. With that, she also has, you know, family that experiences mental illness and um, addiction and various things. And I won't go into too much of that because I don't want to give away any spoilers, which I'm terrified that I will do one day. <laughs> but so she races to Tasmania to to stop. She she really believes that her mother will will do it this time. She's threatened for many years. 
And in doing that, she uncovers a lot of family secrets, secrets which have been a big part of the identity that she's created over that first stretch of her life. And she suddenly realises it's that that kind of moment where she's climbed a ladder and climbed a ladder and climbed a ladder and she's gotten to the top and she's kind of gone, oh, my God, I've put the ladder up against the wrong wall. You know, she looks out and she's like, now I know the truth about why I've made these decisions. I've realised that this is not the life that I want. Not only is it not the life I want, but it's actually not who I am. And then you have the kind of journey of going, well, who am I and what do I want? You know, it's that so many women that I know in their kind of 30s and 40s and 50s and so forth, you know, you can see the look on their face when somebody says, what do you want to do? And they go, oh, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. So it's that kind of moment. And, and she definitely experiences a, a deep, I guess, realisation towards the end that brings her to her knees and forces her, I think, to, to face the myths that, has made, that, that have made her. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Over the last several years, Megan, I've read some truly remarkable stories that explore the dichotomy of modern women's lives. And you alluded to it a little bit earlier, the never-ending battle to balance our professional lives with our personal, to have fulfilling, rewarding careers and be mothers to our children, wives to our partners, daughters to our parents, etc. And Layla is certainly no different. As you said, she's at the top of her working career. She's an anaesthetist working under extreme pressure in a hospital, working hard to keep her family financially afloat, exhausted, and yet feeling inadequate all the time. <laughs> and on top of that, she has a mother who is constantly threatening to kill herself. And I felt the injustice of her situation so deeply. Mm. Was this something that you were keen to explore in this story and why? Mm. Again, you've yeah, you've put that really well and it is that dichotomy. And I think it comes back to that understanding that women contain multitudes. You know, we we contain multitudes, but we compartmentalise those multitudes. So often in our identity we are mothers and in that role as mother we are just mothers. So we contain and we put in a box everything else. You know, every other part of ourselves is put away, similar to when we're wives or we're professionals or we do anything, we're carers for ageing parents or for, you know, friends or family and so forth. So you're right, it was a, it was a decision to explore those things. And I also, and, you know, I come back often to Helen Garner, who's one of, you know, who I really love and who often chastised herself about writing about the domestic and it certainly was something that was really paralyzing to me for many years because I, I always knew that that was the area I wanted to explore. And for, for many years, and, and even probably still, if I'm honest, I often think, oh, you know, there's climate change and there's extreme social injustice and there is all of these things going on which I often think goodness, there's more important topics, isn't there, than this domestic sphere that I am exploring. But but then, you know, I look around me in my day-to-day life and that covers all socioeconomic areas. You know, we, you know, we live and work and go to school in in an area which covers such a beautiful broad spectrum. And, you know, the things that connect us as humans are often these dichotomies in the domestic. So I try to reassure myself, as Helen Garner says, and I listen to interviews with her sometimes where she says, you know, these things are really, really important still. And I also wanted to also pull aside the curtain 
to Layla, which is, again, the first-person narrative as well because, yeah, she's at the height of her career and she has a house and everything, but she certainly hasn't come from that. You know, she's experienced her own traumas in a, in a general sense growing up and I wanted to show that often we don't know someone's history when you see them in a job and they look so successful and they might have, you know, built a career and, you know, they earn money and so forth, but, you know, we, we don't know where that's come from. We don't know what their childhood was like. We don't know what their current situation is like. And often the smoke and mirrors around that can be, you know, the things which prevent us from really owning our stories and sharing our stories because there is shame associated, I think, with with any of those vulnerabilities that we experience as people that make us who we are as adults. Yeah, yeah, so well said. As I mentioned in my introduction, it's clear that Layla is incredibly bright and in, and in a nod to her late father, whom she adored, is intent on pursuing a medical career. And yet for someone so bright, mm. for years, she had no real comprehension of the reasons behind her mother's mental health struggles and possibly didn't even really want to understand and also mm. had little insight, possibly even was a little naive about her own value and how she allowed others to treat her. I wondered, mm. Megan, if you could tell me a bit more about that and how you managed to get inside Layla's head and explore these different aspects of her character so well. That's a really good observation. so interesting because your questions are making me realise things as well, <laughs> which is lovely because it's that, you know, beautiful symbiotic exchange but I think if there's one thing that I feel grateful for and lucky to have experienced even though it is a little bit I mean I'm not by any stretch of the imagination I said that before but old it took me a long time to have close female friendships because I was busy I was always busy and and also too I also wasn't vulnerable with people and I think that you can only have good friends if you are willing to be a good friend and part of that is sharing your own stories and vulnerabilities so to answer that question I became increasingly aware as I opened up to other women and they opened up to me that many many uh, seemingly successful people have real blind spots <laughs> um, have real you know whether it be you know a friend who you know you'd think would know that, say, their partner's having an affair but turn, don't turn a blind eye necessarily but they can be naive or they just don't want to know. And and those things on paper and when we're told seem so strange and silly and incomprehensible but when you are that person, not that I have been, but if you are that person or you're experiencing something similar to that, like you maybe don't see your parents for who they really are, yet everyone else can, or a boyfriend who treats you badly, or, you know, a friendship which is maybe a bit toxic and so forth, we justify, and I mean, in psychology, you know, they call it reducing cognitive dissonance, where there is this dissonance happening that we might or might not be completely aware of. And we tell ourselves these stories to reduce that dissonance. So we just go, oh, he doesn't do it all the time, or you know, he means well and he's damaged and, you know, he really does love me. You know, all my parents did the best they could and so you turn a blind eye to maybe some of the things that happened in your childhood and and sometimes I think we repress a lot of stuff that happens, whether that be in our families or in our intimate relationships as we're growing up. Mm-hmm. And so many of the women around me as I started to develop these beautiful friendships with women 
I started to realize that, gosh, don't we all have our blind spots? That really, if any of us are honest, I don't think many of us are immune to it. It, You know, we can have PhDs, (laughs) we can be at the top of our game and and we can be super self-aware and emotionally intelligent. But sometimes I think we, everyone has something, whether it be a relationship with a parent or a sibling or something that we just want it. We want it so badly to be something that it's not, you know, we want it to be better or we want it to be okay. We want ourselves to be okay. And because we want that so bad, we're willing to put a little bit of a veil over it to to maybe pretend that it's something that it's not. Yeah. Oh, so well said. So do you think that Layla's an unreliable narrator? (laughs) Oh, that's a good, yeah, wow, that's a good one. And it's so funny because, you know, like when you teach creative writing, when you talk about writing, it's such a common theme, isn't it? But it's actually not something that I've thought about. Wow, yeah, okay. That's that's so interesting. Do I think Layla is an unreliable narrator? Yeah, um, I do. And, and I do... Only because, and I think I think that maybe every single first-person narration in the beginning, if it's a story which tracks a journey, which I guess most stories are, aren't they? But especially if it's personal and intimate and you're tracking the journey and the changes, you know, of a person and, and their belief system about themselves and and so forth, if you're tracking a character's change, then I think that if you're only viewing it through their eyes, then the information they provide you as individuals is unreliable because they can only supply you with the information they have, you know, so we don't know what we don't know. I think as an author, the fun bit is the foreshadowing and the peppering little bits and pieces through the beginning and the middle through other characters and through observation that you can get in there in little tricky ways that I guess circumnavigate that isolated viewpoint that's the kind of fun bit and it's it's also the way I guess that you put in little prompts that make people go oh oh actually and then you go back and and then you kind of reread little bits and you go oh yeah okay I kind of get the interwovenness of that now um, but that's a really good question. So I would say, uh, yeah, I think she is unreliable. And I think that, you know, as an author, you're doing your job if they are in the beginning because, uh, you know, it's that famous line about, you know, our job as authors is to put a character up a tree and then get them down. If if those characters don't know how they got up there <laughs> and don't know how they're going to get down, then then any information they give you is is going to be pretty faulty. Yeah, absolutely. So very interesting. Now, Mm. I didn't know the whole background to the anaesthetist that you encountered in the hospital when your child, when your your daughter was (laughs) sick. But I kind of felt that the fact that you made Layla an anaesthetist was no accident. No. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Again, that's interesting because I do have that backstory. But, you know, we, we encounter so many people in so many professions and we don't have to choose those, you know. So, you know, coming back to that idea of turning a blind eye and, and putting veils over things to, to reduce that dissonance in our perception. I'm a big believer and lover of metaphor. <laughs> Not too heavy-handed. I mean, you've got to be heavy-handed enough so that people go, oh, this is something that means something else. I love good metaphor. And I, I often kind of say to people, it's it's like any good, you know, movie or book where you can just, you can just read through it. And, and if 
you don't have to, you know. You can just read as a story. You don't have to look any further. But if you're a reader who likes to, if you want to look up the meanings behind characters' names or even, you know, even the location that I've chosen, even the name of that fictional location, um, Port Jericho, Jericho is chosen for a reason. So there are lots of little things in there, like the poem that Layla's mum reads in a particular scene has a lot of Sylvia Plath's imagery in it. Now, if you read that poem and you dissect it, there's a lot of little secret images in there as well. So I, I like, it's fun, you know, it's like a little treasure hunt. So I chose Layla to be an anaesthetist because I wanted her to be numbing herself. You know, I wanted her to to like the concept of, you know, putting someone under and and and, and giving them a state of um, frozenness, you know, in in time, and and I feel as though as a child she is almost frozen in that moment, you know, when she's with her father in the observatory and they're looking at the stars, and he's this godlike person in her eyes. You know, she can have all the success career wise, and she can get married, she can have kids, but she's really frozen as that little girl in that moment in many ways, and I think that many people have states in their childhood that they kind of keep within them is this solid core and, uh, you know, these core memories we talk about. And so I wanted her to be numbing herself to anything which questioned or, I guess, shed light upon anything that she had experienced, which may not be entirely true. Now, as a person who studied science and who has an interest in astronomy, I guess it was no surprise that astronomy was a theme that ran through the narrative of this book. Tell me more about this interest and why it was important to Layla's story. Oh, I love science. <laughs> I can <laughs> tell. Such a geek. And I just, you know, one of the things I love about writing novels is, you know, I never, even though I loved studying science and maths too, I love maths, which, you know, maybe I'll bring more into another book, but I didn't want to ever work in that field, but I just love it. So writing novels allows me to explore areas and themes, you know, go down the rabbit hole of research that I love without necessarily working in those areas. So it's, it's to me, it's so exciting in that way. And so I think I love science because for me, it's magic. It's just magic. And, and, and everything in our world that we think of as magical, it, it, everything that we think of as writers and humans that have been the muse for us for eons, that have inspired poetry and writing and art in all its forms. Things like rainbows and sunsets and the stars and and the beach and waves, all of these things, the science, yeah? Love, sex, all of these things have a scientific element to them. And I think often we separate the science and the arts, but for me they've never been separate. Mm. For me they're, they're one and the same thing. It's just awe. That's how I think about it is both of them. It, it's, it inspires awe in me to see an incredible painting and to see a sunset or the refraction of light in a certain way or to think about the fact that the star that I'm seeing in the sky is actually an image which is seven years old or something like that. And I just, that to me is, it makes me feel both immensely small <laughs> and immensely connected. To people because you know I think what an incredible world that we live in that all those minuscule things that 
like when babies are formed, you know, and you, you, you go down the rabbit hole of exactly how that happens in a body and then when they're growing and all those things that happen in a human body and the connections that are made, you know, neurologically and physically, the same way that, you know, when we see a night sky or when we see a garden, all of those connections and interconnectedness are happening before us. And so for me, those observations, whether it be astronomical or mathematical or anything like that, are really no different from if I was talking about a, a painting, which I do I talk about painting in a little bit. But if I was, I guess, exploring the idea of artistry and paint, for me, those things are no, no different really, because they're beautiful and complex and they allow me to explore something like Layla's story, which isn't necessarily as it seems. Fantastic. Uh, now, as evidence of your very great interest in science, Layla asks her father at some point how a rocket works and he does a little experiment and that experiment you replicated on Instagram one day, which I happened to see. I can't see that. I know. Yeah. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So if anyone out there is uh, intrigued by my reference to, to this little experiment that Megan has uh, performed, please look up Megan's Instagram account. <laughs> Wow. Oh, I have embarrassed a bit by that now, but um, I just no, love it. I love that experiment. So. <laughs> now, there seems to be a growing movement of Australian stories being set in Tasmania at the moment, and The Heart is a Star is set between mainland Australia and the wild, windswept coast of northwest Tasmania. Mm. Why did you want to set your book there? There is, I know, it's like, you know, when you call a child a name and then suddenly all the other kids have that name. <laughs> I felt a little bit like that when, because of course, this has been something that I've been working on for years. And so, you know, it comes out and you're like, oh, there's a, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. You're like, oh, it's, you know, naming your child a, something that's um, become popular. Uh, so I never had a doubt in my mind that I wanted to sit on the West Coast of Tassie. And I have, this is an interesting story. So one of the things I did in between the Melbourne lockdowns, which was terrifying, actually, I flew to Tassie and I did the drive that Layla does very quickly because I was terrified that I was going to get stuck in Tasmania because people were getting stuck in to state at the time. And to be away from my children for, you know, sometimes people didn't know when they were getting back. That was, that would be torture for me. Like I, I just, you know, a night or two, to be honest, was fantastic. But to have it indefinitely or for a while was was difficult. So I did that drive. I did it quickly. I wanted to get the landscape right. I wanted to get the feelings right. And so I took photos along the way and I wanted it to be, I want. I wanted the landscape and the weather and uh, the location to mirror Hello. Um, hello. In the last, literally, days and weeks of his life. Sorry, um, Megan. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to interrupt you. I lost you for about 30 seconds there. Um, so what the last thing you? I heard, yeah. The last thing I heard was uh, the landscape. You were, you were taking photos and you wanted to get the landscape correct. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back now. Yep, yep. I suspect it was at my um, end. Some interruption. So oh, that's okay. Just let me know. It's all good. It's all good. Um, so, yeah, I, wanted, I, I was very drawn to the West Coast and I wanted to 
use a landscape and a weather pattern, which I could use to do a bit of foreshadowing and to represent themes in the book, to be moody and all those types of things. And I was really drawn to that space. So when I did the drive, I took, you know, lots of photos and, uh, you know, my father was really unwell at the time and almost nonverbal. And I wanted to take the time to do family uh, ancestry investigation. And so a good friend of mine, Simon, is a genealogist. And so we were doing my family tree at the same time. And for my whole life, I had thought that my grandfather and my relatives were born in Camberwell and in Melbourne and quite, I guess, close to where my dad grew up at the time. And, you know, he didn't talk very much about them and I really wanted to know more. You know, I think we get to a stage in our lives where we really want to know where we've come from, uh, our own myths that make us in many ways. And so I come back from the trip and Simon emails me and he goes, your grandfather was born five minutes from where you've set your book. No way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the church that I took a picture of is the church that my great-grandparents got married in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so my family come from there and and were there for generations and, gee, they were were characters. I definitely don't come from money. One of the women was a, a... around a brothel, you know, there are lots of farmers, lots of farming people, really working class, lower working class people, a few criminals in there and so forth. So he still tells that story to people because he said as a genealogist it's it's the strangest thing that he's experienced. But I literally looked in the map and the Port Jericho that I've created is kind of a combination in between Stanley and a few other places there and, you know, I looked on the map and literally, you know, the landscape that I had driven through and looked at, it's, you know, maybe a half of a finger away from away from where I've set it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. My next question was going to be, I was trying to imagine exactly where Port Jericho would have been. I've been to Tasmania <laughs> a number of times in the last few years and I still, I couldn't quite picture where it, it was. And I, I went to Lake St. Clair and I was looking in that area and I thought yeah. maybe Stanley, I wasn't really sure. It's Stanley and Strawn, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Megan, so tell me about the title, The Heart is a Star. Tell me about that. Was that your title? Yeah, that was my title. So I had a few working titles as I was submitting it. And I think one of the great gifts of, you know, I probably didn't explain uh, the full extent of the publishing process before, actually, did I, about agent publishing and so forth, but I can a bit later if you want me to. Um, You know, one of the gifts of that is, is it, like being interviewed, actually, it brings into focus what you're talking about in your book. And so it was always about navigation. It was always about, you know, coming to some kind of ability to listen to your inner voice and not the world around you. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of anatomical stuff in there and astronomical. And so for me, uh, you know, that was the title that I pitched to the publisher once I'd kind of finished a close to final draft for editing and they luckily because it doesn't always happen they luckily really liked it and I felt too because it is a crossover novel between literary and commercial you know I my litmus test was always could my mum read this and really love it and could you know one of the you know literary academics at the university read it and find something else in it as well so could both of those you know, extremes enjoy it. And so for me, the title 
you know, it can be a more kind of emotive commercial novel and it can be a more metaphorical medical and astronomical title as well if you want to see it that way. Megan, if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? To keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily my book, but books in general. Um, Yeah, I guess just to, to, you know, you always want as an author someone to finish reading go, I love reading. This is, you know, this this is why I love reading. That's not, uh, I guess, necessarily about the story per se, but about just, you know, I just love books. I've always been they've always been my company, you know, they've always been my saving grace many times. So I guess I'd love for people to close the last page and kind of go enjoy the process of reading, you know, just devouring a book. And then I'd also, I guess, like them to think about, you know, ways in which maybe their own identities have been created in in their lives and, and whether that has, I guess mirrored who they are as people, and and whether there is in their second part of their life, or or somewhere along those lines, we all hope a way to live a really authentic life aligned with what we really want, rather than what all the people around us want. Yeah, takes bravery though, doesn't it? It does. Oh yeah. And look, I mean, I need to take some leaves out of Layla's books, probably many time uh, where she comes to at the end I'm certainly pretty far from an expert but you know I think we all try don't we we try and we you know Pema Chodron who I adore has that saying where you fail you fail again you fail better and you know maybe part of it is just the sincere desire to to want it not necessarily getting it right so Megan what's next working on something else I am I'm pretty uh pretty ensconced <laughs> in the next one I've learned about myself that I'm better when I'm writing <laughs> better for everyone around me <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I have quite an active interior world in, in in my head and it is much better when I'm pointing that towards a novel rather than myself <laughs> yeah. um, or overthinking or worrying about things um, so I'm pointing that squarely at the next novel and just Loving it. You know, I think people said to me along the way, sometimes it does happen that people write a book and, and go into the publishing and getting it out there and they realise, well, actually maybe this is not really what I want to do with my life, which is totally understandable. But for me, on every single level, it reinforced just how much in my bones I love writing. So the fact that I can even think about Doing that is, you know, one of the greatest privileges, I think, of my life. So, Megan, given your experiences to date, do you have any tips for aspiring authors who listen to this podcast? Mm. (laughs) It's a million-dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) I think that people often talk about, you know, their own processes and rightfully so because I think a lot of that information is useful. But I think that if you really want it, if you are really, really hungry, you just need to, I think, you just need to. It sounds easy, doesn't it? And it's not. But, you know, filtering, as you do feedback on your work, filtering people's processes and ideas and approaches and finding something that works for you because there is absolutely no right or wrong. I don't th- I don't think there can be or could be. So I think if you can find a process which works for you, 
And it doesn't matter if you are, you know, often I think we we listen to other writers who get up at five and they'll write for four hours and they'll do this and, you again, you shame yourself into going, oh, God, I'm not doing that enough, I'm not disciplined enough. You know, my reality is that I couldn't do that. My reality is that I have kids and I work and a lot of the writing that I did was in the car at school pickup or it was in between meetings or it was at 3 a.m. when I got up and then went back to bed or, you know, whenever it was. That's what worked for me because it's what I could manage. And so I think the more that you can just honour yourself and go, you know what, my process is okay. It's not perfect and it's not Hemingway and it's not all of these things, but if you can really embrace it and be kind of unapologetic about it and keep to it so that you can trust, you can learn to trust yourself, then you learn to trust your process. That I think will keep you in pretty good stead. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. Wonderful advice. Megan, I loved The Heart as a Star and I have no doubt it will find its abundant readers in due course. I wish you every success with this book and for the next one. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.